You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome in to the House of L. I am Lawrence Holmes. It is episode 61 of the House of L. I am so excited for you to hear this episode because it's a guest that I've wanted on the podcast since the podcast began. And a couple weeks ago, I said to Tom Thayer, hey, man, you want to do the podcast? He's like, I, I love House of L. I was like, really? And he said, yeah. So I said, let's do this one day that you're in doing Bears All Access. So we were able to make the whole thing work. And I think that you're in store for a very enjoyable hour. Okay. So I have to tell you that episode 60 with Gabe Ramirez rattled some cages. It did. Not for the reasons that you might think. But there were there was one person in particular that uh, didn't like some of our softball rankings. You'll hear from that person at the end of the episode. It was fun. I'm trying really hard not to waste any time with this one because I do want to just get to Tom. And I know that people are are interested. But I will say thanks for the support of the podcast as always. And if you want to email the podcast, houseofelpodcast at gmail.com with suggestions and some there have been some really really good ones so far i'm trying to get to as many interesting people as i can and interesting stories as i can and i'm glad that i got the opportunity to talk with tom thayer because i love the way he does his job i really do and he also leads a very interesting life and i've admired that about him since i've gotten the opportunity to know him a little bit So we sat down and we had a fun and serious conversation about the art of broadcasting, but we started off talking about his favorite place on earth. How did you fall in love with Hawaii? Uh, Right after the Super Bowl, Jay Hilgenberg made the Pro Bowl, and so me, Jay, and Mike Tomczak went over there. But I played in the Hula Bowl after my senior year in college. And then my first year in the USFL, won a trip over there by some chances and went back over there. And so I'm going, okay, the season's over. I can't believe the atmosphere. And everybody over there is health conscious and workout conscious. So you can be social. You can have fun. You can meet people, but you're active. And so 
the next after I retired or after I got done playing my second year, I went over there for like five or six weeks and I just worked out the whole time. Just meeting a group of guys, you know, you got these guys that are either triathletes or surfers or volleyball players or whatever they do, they're in the gym every day. So you kind of get in that routine. And I was coming home from Hawaii in better shape than the guys that were starting to get ready to get in shape. And so it's somewhere I love to be. <clears throat> and then the real attachment I had was is I knew when I retire I wanted to surf. And so when I did retire, the thing that got me into retirement was surfing. And it kind of it gives you the same mental frame work that you do on the morning of a game. So are you pulling a soldier field, you're getting ready to play a football game as an active offensive lineman, and you got nervousness, preparation, all that running through your head. When you go and you know that you pull up to the ocean and maybe something that you're a little underqualified for, it gives you that same nervousness in the pit of your stomach. And it's a healthy nervousness. And it kind of makes you relive the same feeling you did on kickoff Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Saturday, whatever it was in your life. And that's, that's the main thing that guys lose most when they retire is that feeling in their heart of nervousness, preparation, preparedness, all that kind of stuff. And that's what Hawaii and surfing has done for me. So you were chasing that, uh-huh. that you were trying to regain that same feeling. Still makes me nervous. I pull up, you know, I'm 57 years old. I pull up to the shore, meet my friends there. You kind of look out what you're going to face and you have to be prepared for what you're going to face. You have to pre- be prepared for what could happen out there. And then, but it is the, the, what you're living for is, is that pity or stomach feeling. Huh. What's, what's the best moment you had on a surfboard? Oh, man. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I was surfing in some weathery conditions, and it was big for me. You know, big for guys that are the greatest, the Laird Hamiltons and such. That's something that is unreachable for any of us. But big to me, you're out in the ocean, um, and there's a wave coming behind you, and you got to go. You got to go. There is no waiting for the next one. There is no getting. No, you got to go. And I just remember jumping onto this wave and I saw a guy at the bottom of the wave and he's kind of looking at me like, is he going to make this? And then you make it, you make it, you got your balance. And then you, then you get to enjoy the thrust of the wave, the movement, the velocity that you're going to achieve. And the whole fact that God, I made it because if I didn't, it could be scary. Okay. So what's the worst moment you've ever had on a surfboard? Um, a couple of years ago, I was surfing and I was trying to get back out outside of over the top of a wave and you see him break and I couldn't make it. So I tried to push my board over the top of the wave and my weight and the weight of the board got stressed so uh, ferociously that my leash snapped and my board went in. And I so we had to swim for like 30 minutes, 35 minutes to get to a point where you could get into a position to get your board. How does a, a kid from Joliet even pick up a surfboard? It's the admiring the ability of the guys that I watched for years, guys that I was working out with, but I was too scared to surf because I was too worried about what it could possibly do to me and term, or hurt me for football preparation. And then the more I was around it, the more I knew I wanted to do it. And then when you, you know, it's kind of a weird time. When I decided to retire, 
I was playing for the Miami Dolphins. We played New England Patriots in the last game of the year. Whoever won the game went to the playoffs. We lost in overtime. And I remember sitting there going, I think I'm done. Mentally, physically, I, I think I'm done with this. And Don Shula said, you know, don't don't even make a decision now. Take weeks, and then when minicamp starts, come around, make a decision and think about it. So I went out to Hawaii, got a surfboard made for me, started eating perfectly. I was surfing every single day, morning, noon, and night. Got down to like 2.30, and that football option was taken away from me. And that's what I needed because I think if you always stay on the cusp, okay, I'm going to live life at 280. You know, someone needs someone in a pinch. I can work out for a couple weeks. I'll be ready to go. I wasn't in that frame of mind anymore. I knew that I, you know, physically challenged myself in football, and I was ready to go in a different direction. Do you think that this is your natural state? Like, are, are you at your like ideal weight? Because I always wonder about football players. Like, when they're done playing the game, some guys go up. So I, I, I know a few. They go up. A lot of guys go down. But I always wonder if if you didn't have to play football, do you think that this is what you would have looked like? I don't know. I, I don't know because you know you're always you grow up in a sports atmosphere. Because Joliet is a weightlifting town. It's a wrestling town. It's a blue collar town that you know my dad was work comrade forty three years every day working outdoors. So you were in that type of lifestyle. And so when you were blessed with size, you wanted to contribute something to it. Maybe I would have been a tight end, you know, because when I think of myself and, and stuffing my face and getting to that 280, 290 pound range and sustaining that and the diet you had and the weightlifting, everything, just think if you said, okay, I'm going to be a 250 pound, 255 pound tight end when the tight ends are 230 and 220. Maybe you could have been that next stage of powerful tight end. But do you have the athleticism? I don't know. I wouldn't change anything. For, you know, if I, you know, you could go back and do it all again. I think I was a bigger guy. You know, my uh, my family's big bone and stuff. So it's just part of the blessing. I, I, personally, I don't want to talk about team accomplishment because I obviously you, you've reached the highest point as far as team. And I'll get to that. But personally for you, what was the most satisfying part of your football career? Um. You know, I, I, like I said, I come from a blue-collar family. I'm the youngest of five kids. My mom and dad have been married for 68 years. We still live in the same house I was born and raised in. When I was the youngest and my brother above us, we had the opportunity to get a college education through sports, something that was not affordable with the income that we are growing up in. My greatest accomplishment is once my brother got a scholarship before me and then I got one, Every one of my nieces and nephews from that point on went and graduated from college. Whether they had assistance in sports, one nephew played at U of I, one nephew played at College, college of St. Francis, um, one played at Xavier University. Um, so that's what it was. It was, it was the, 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 upgrade, uh, the, the upgrade of opportunity that sports gave me and my brother, and then it contributed and trickled down to my nieces and nephews. It's still important to you. Like it's I always enjoy watching former athletes do broadcasting because it kind of goes one of two ways. Either the ex-athlete is like I'm here and that's all that needs to happen or the ex-athlete takes what they've learned from athletics, throws everything into doing it and becomes great at doing it. You remind me very much of the early days of watching Doug Buffone do broadcasting. 
when I first started at the score, I was the overnight producer. I was Les Grobstein's producer. Right. So that gave me a window into what Doug did because that was the bear and the bull. It's him and Norm. And Doug would come in 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. He'd ask me, you know, to have the papers come in. He'd be in our break room, and he's just reading and consuming everything. Whether if I see you at Soldier Field or see you here at the score getting ready for Bears All Access, it's kind of the same thing. I, I'm curious if you do think that what you did as an athlete has prepared you for what you're doing now. Well, the preparation of the broadcast, yeah, because when you're an offensive lineman, you have to study everybody on the opponent's defense that you're getting ready to face because at one time or another, with the responsibilities we had and the movement of our offensive guard position, we blocked everybody. So the study habits that we are taught by Dick Stanfeld, our offensive line coach, was second to none because he's been able to give the experience of a great player, and now he's he's a great coach that's coaching you as a player. So from the time you're in your stance to the time you make collision, Dick Stanfeld, he teaches you and tells you every aspect of how it's going to happen. So it's not a surprise when it happens. So when you get an opportunity for years to study with the same group, you know, you think of those five guys starting seven seasons, the communication you develop, the camaraderie, the understanding of the offense. And I think that's what helped you, um, be prepared for the second stage of life because you had to invest so much time in watching tape um, that it's it's kind of an easy carryover when you got into broadcasting because that's the only thing you know. And so you're you're still watching tape like a crazy person. Yeah. You know, Lawrence, I, I have a history of tape at home that from when I was a player, I have groups of one-on-ones. I have groups of nine-on-seven. I have groups of teamworks. And there's a lot of times examples like – like watching Dan Hampton pass rush on one-on-ones is unique because he had a different type of body style than Steve McMichael did. And so when you look at a guys of similarities as they come down the, the chain of, you know, from one year to the next, you see guys that have similarities. And so sometimes I go back and I look at the experiences I had against these guys and I see how it fits to the, some modern day players. I I'd so enjoy working with Hamp like even though our show failed I I loved working with him and learning like little things about the game and he would tell me like something here something there I've always felt like and clearly the guy's a hall of famer he's in the hall of fame but I'm not even sure if that really explains how good of a player he was he was incredible and watching him pass rush to me whether he was playing on the inside or the outside is a fascinating case study. So what was that like to deal with as you're coming up in the game? Well, to me, when I got to the Bears, I was so intimidated by Dan Hampton and McMichael and that whole defense because I was a fan of the Bears. And so I paid close attention to him. So while I was playing in the USFL, I was investing everything I had in getting prepared to come and play for the Bears. In the USFL, we had practice at night. I would go to the gym in the morning and I would work out. I would do a full off-season weightlifting routine, rest during the day, then I would go to practice at night because we were out in Arizona. It was hot. And so it was all in preparation to go and practice against a bunch of guys. And then I had a teammate of mine in the USFL that tried out for the Bears, and he goes, I'll tell you what, man, when you go to practice, Hampton's rolling his sleeves up, McMichael's cussing at everybody. He's got his sleeves rolled up. These guys are bad dudes, you know, so you better be ready. So I was intimidated when I got here. And – um you know, you kind of had to kind of 
try to gain confidence within yourself to the believing that you had the ability to be out there. And now these guys are coming off of getting beat in the NFC Championship game. So how many guys are really going to make the team? So I was nervous. I had a lot. I had a lot of pressure that I put on myself because now I'm now I'm the local kid playing for the Bears, you know. And, and so there's a little bit different pressure um, because I want to succeed for my family. And when you're the youngest in your family, you you, you God, you want to succeed for a lot of people. When did you feel like you belonged? Um, oh man, when I. F- you know, my the first game I had an opportunity to play in was the Minnesota game that McMahon came in and threw all the touchdowns. And Kurt Becker got hurt, and Dick Stanfeld came up to me and says, Hey, Becker got hurt, you're in. That's the notification that's the notification you get. You better be prepared. And mentally I wasn't prepared. Physically, I was disappointed because I hadn't played a snap up until that point. I didn't play anything in the preseason other than the second half of the last preseason game. So I'm thinking I'm gonna get cut. And then so finally I was able to back up the center position, get some reps at guard, and then when the opportunity presented itself, I went out there and I was able to perform, and that's when I felt I belonged. And now you got to improve because belonging is just an instant. Improving week in and week out is always the most important because Dick Stanfield used to say, look, as long as your arrow's pointed up, I'm going to coach you. As soon as your arrow starts pointed down, i got to look to replace you. So you could never live on a bad practice, on bad effort, on repeated mental errors out there on, on the field. So um, I, felt I, I felt I was in a position where if I kept on working hard, I could belong after that Minnesota opportunity. As a broadcaster, in listening to the games or you talking on Bears All Access or even when you're just a guest, that seems to be a trigger for you. When you're watching players and you see a guy make the same mistake, multiple times how do you deal with that frustration uh when when it comes to expressing it publicly well you know to have an example where you had a chance to either see him throughout training camp or during some practices or some moments that that were all exposed out there to see what you're working out or seeing if you're vulnerable to getting beat by the the same move what can you do to correct yourself what are you repeatedly doing wrong and then if you can't get coached out of it you're not going to be here very long and that's one of the things that comes back to haunt everybody. I remember a few years ago I was standing out at training camp practice and the Bears had an offensive tackle, Jordan Mills. And he had a bad habit of reaching from the outside, reaching from the outside, and he got holding calls repeatedly. So the offensive line coach at the time, Dave Magazoo, said, Jordan, I got you have to change this. I can't keep you doing this because you're going to get us killed. We're going to get repeated holding calls. So it was like day three into training camp and he was doing it every single rep at practice and he said Jordan you're out of there I'm gonna make a switch and I think they might have put in Charles Leno and then the whole switch went around after that but it was just like these coaches recognize repeated mistakes that are not are hard to correct or hard to coach them out of once they see that then they're the players kind of making the decision for the coach how would you have approached that situation because clearly, like in Jordan's case, this was something that he was doing all the time. So it's learned and it's hard to get out of that habit. So how would you say to him he should get out of the habit? The biggest weapon the offensive linemen have is the snap count. And so, and I always tell coaches this, eight games a year you own it, eight games a year you earn it. 
talking about the snap counts because eight games you're at home you're gonna this you're gonna be able to hear the snap count now eight games a year you're gonna be on the road you got to run the ball you got to try to earn that crowd out of it then you can take control of the count so if I know the snap count in Lawrence you and I are lining up against each other I guarantee you because I know the snap count I can initiate my hands into the interior of your chest and then you're gonna make your first move but the first thing you have to do when you study tape of your opponent, what is the first thing they do out of their stance? I mean, when the ball is snapped, what is their initial movement? Because a lot of defensive linemen will widen their arms out a little bit, first, their first reaction, and you get, man, you get your chance to get your hands in the si- inside. You get your chance inside, and you do it repeatedly through every single one-on-one rep, every single practice rep, then it becomes second nature. Because... Look at our offensive line. Look at the arm length of Jimbo Covert, and you look at the arm length of Keith Van Horn. Completely two different bodies. One shorter armed and one longer arm. Right. But that was the great thing about Dick Stanfeld. He, He coached you into your best of ability according to your body size. No one's stances are the similar. They're they're according to what your body is able, how it's able to bend the most efficiently. But again, the snap count when you break the huddle, that's the weapon, man, that you got to take advantage of and you got to make sure that you initiate contact before a defensive lineman is allowed to touch you first. What makes a great coach? Man, what makes a great I, – I think, you know, offensive line coach, patience, because he's, he's like a – you know, I, I was always wanted to ask a bullpen or a, a pitching coach this – because every pitcher on a baseball team, there's something different about the way they go about their business. That's the same thing with offensive linemen. Bortsy's different than me. I'm different than Jay. Kurt Becker is different than me and Bortsy. You know, Jimbo is different than Van Horn. So, I mean, the, the, the coach, the patience and the willingness to coach you to be the best athlete, not all to be the same athlete. Mm. And I think that's the great trait that Dick Stanfield was able to find in every single offensive lineman he coached was what do they do well, how, come, how can I put them in the most confident, balanced position, and then you, you can't have mental errors. You know, you, that's, that's a key ingredient is you gotta be, you got to be smart and you can't accept them. When you talk about watching tape, I'm, I'd love to know, who was the defensive player that when you watch them on tape, you're like, man, this guy gets it right. Like, all the time. Like, they change up the way that they're going to rush. They're they're physical when they have to be. They use speed when they have to. Who is that player? Well, you know, obviously Reggie White is going to be on a kind of a pedestal of his own because speed-wise, physical, inside, outside, if you're one-on-one against them, you're going, you're going into the lap of the quarterback no matter if you want to or not. But when I look at the MVP season, a guy like Keith Millard, he had incredible explosiveness and the innate ability to understand the snap count. So he was never herky-jerky. He was always right there, man. And so you had to be so in tempo with him that if you caught him that second in advance, you could dominate him. If he beat you a second, then he's going to dominate you, similar to what J.J. Watt has the ability to do nowadays. Um, but, you know, you, you think of guys like that that have this incredible – you know, William Perry, the fridge – he and, his, he and his brother, Michael Dean Perry, they both had great innate ability to never be herky-jerky with the snap count and use their explosiveness as their asset. And that's one of the things you notice about Fridge early in his career. He wasn't jumping off sides, and Michael Dean was the same. And it's weird because you get these defensive linemen that are really susceptible to a hard count and can be faked off balance. That's all you need, off balance, not necessarily off sides. 
But Fridge was super disciplined at that, and that's one of the unique things that he came in with as a rookie. You talked a lot about family and growing up, and it's clear that that it's important to you. How is the Thayer family? Like, what what <laughs> what is it about the Thayer family that that made you guys so close? The commitment to my mom and dad of my mom and dad stay married for 68 years. My mom has worked her whole life. She still works at 86 years old. My dad worked his whole life. Everything was for the kids, whether it's getting us in and out of sporting events. I grew up with three older sisters, making sure that they were able to do everything they wanted to do within their lifetime. Unfortunately, they weren't athletes at the time, so they more went and went through the high school education process and then went on to have jobs their whole life. But I think um, with my family, my brothers and sisters and everybody involved, it's always a rededication to the commitment of my mom and dad for what they did for us as sisters and brothers, nieces and nephews, grandkids, great-grandkids. We had adopted kids in my family. So we had, we had, a, whole, we had a whole full house. Is Joliet unique? Yeah, you know, it's it's a prideful town. It's a, it, you know, there's there's so many, you know, when I was growing up, blue collar surrounded Joliet, whether it's the be the brickyards or the steel mills or Commonwealth Edison or the prisons. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't those, you know, white collar world com- commercials that you see on TV that are fantasy. It's a bunch of hard working people that their support, they support the community. They have a good school system down there, and um, you know it, it's a it's a prideful group of people. It seems to be. It, it yeah. seems to be that it, whenever you talk to people from Joliet, they want to talk about Joliet. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a weird thing. Hey, you know my mom, my mom and my brother, they have a little restaurant jo- down in Joliet, and so I'll go down there and hang out or bus tables or whatever. And you know, the, even the people down there when you're bussing tables, you know they want to they want to talk Chicago sports or. You know, they just want to pick your brain a little bit. So it's it's the great thing for me is be able to continuously go back to the area that I grew up, same house I was born and raised in. We still have the same telephone number. Nothing has ever changed. From I'm still cutting the same lawn. I was born in 61, so I'm still cutting the same lawn I've been cutting my whole life for my mom and dad. That's super cool. Yeah. That is super cool. You're asked a lot about Bears history, winning a championship. What's the question that you wish people would ask you about that era? How did you guys win three? <laughs> really? I mean, isn't isn't the, the what's the most frequently question you get asked? How come you didn't win more? Just think if we were sitting up here and you know you could hear jingling of Super Bowl rings in your pocket rather than they just had that one lonely ring. You imagine being the youngest team in the NFL to win the Super Bowl, the amount of points we scored, and then never having a chance to get back to the Super Bowl. Just imagine, you know, if that was the case. Why do you think it didn't happen? We just ne- never had um, consistency in health at the quarterback position at the most time, uh, the most important time of the year. You know, when you have injuries that are interruption, the, interrupting the quarterback throughout the regular season, or now you get the head coach is trying to make decisions into the playoffs, it's hard. It's hard to prepare. It's hard to have the consistency. It's it's hard to have the fear of a guy like Jim McMahon playing quarterback and the defenses have to back off the ball. You got Steve Fuller, who's got limited scrambling ability. You got Mike Tomzak, who is a free agent coming out of college. And the other quarterbacks during the playoff times didn't have a great deal of experience, flutie and stuff. So it was just unfortunate that 
you know, we didn't have the Phil Sims or the Doug Williams or the Mark Rippon or the guy that was there for a few years, you know, that was leading the same team, that leading that same charge into the playoffs. What was a huddle with Jim McMahon and Walter Payton like? Awesome. I was so enamored in love with Walter Payton when I first got to come to the Chicago Bears because he was all of our heroes in so many ways. And then you're standing in the same huddle and they call a slant 45. And that means you better make a good block because Walter's getting the ball and he's coming behind you and you don't want to fail for Walter Payton. Um, And that was just, I think anybody would have had a chance to rub elbows with Walter in the huddle would felt the same way. And, you know, McMahon, he was probably the smartest quarterback uh, without having to study that I've ever been around. And, you know, you think of Jim's blessing was being around Lavelle Edwards at BYU. When Jim graduated from BYU, I think he had 72 or 77 NCAA passing records. You know, 60 completions in a game, 72 attempts. You know, this kind of pre-thinking passing attack that was still archaic in terms of what he came to when he got to the NFL. You know, he was so far ahead of us that – I, you, you could look at film and he'd walk in and say, ah, safety's got to move. Yeah, I got to go here. It's not something that he'd want to study and like offensive linemen, we go back and forth and back and forth. Jim, he could see it instantly, knew it was supposed to happen and where the ball was going to go. So if he would have stayed healthy, there was a chance for him to be an all-time great. Yeah. I think just Jim challenged himself sometimes. You know, I heard that one play that we're in the NFC Championship game against the Rams, and he scrambles, I think, to the left for a big run, but it gets hit in the butt, and then he has a bad butt bruise in preparation for the Super Bowl. Jim was a winner, man. He was a dedicated do-what-it-needs in order to get the ball into the end zone. Sometimes that was a detriment to him because, you know, Jim's not 6'5", 230. He's 6'1", 200. You know, he's not a big guy in the ferociousness of the willing of what they allowed the defenses to do back then. Guys wanted to get McMahon, you know, and something one of them did right illegally. Uh, One of them was able to do that. I've heard from Hampton and a couple other defensive players from that era about the competitiveness between offense and defense in those years. Yeah. Is there talk about it overblown or was it really a competitive thing? It was a real. It was a healthy competitiveness. It was. It was the most competitive practices I've ever been around. I've seen up into this point, or I think will ever be around, because that tradition has gone out of the NFL. Because you had Buddy Ryan competing against Mike Ditka. You had Mike Ditka's guys that were the offensive line competing against Buddy's guys who were the all-star defensive line, and um, we practiced live. When we got dressed to go to practice, your helmet was filled, your fingers were taped, your shoes were spatted. And you were out there, and you were competing at a really high level. And then they were, um, you know, they were making decisions on the way you practice. So if you didn't go out there and give your all and give your effort and go out there and fight to the end, you were going to get run over and you're going to remove your job, you know, get removed from your job. Some unbelievable fights out there. McMichael and Jimbo, one of the greatest fights of all time. I saw McMichael rip the face mask off of Mark Bortz after Mark Bortz cut him in practice. So, you know, you had these things that were going on. But, again, I think I think both sides of the line, there's so much respect for each of those guys, the way they were willing to work every day, and then the results on the weekend. Because you'd go down there and you'd play opponents that were a step slower than the guys you were practicing against hmm. all week. Hmm. And it was a luxury. You know, um, 
I, I remember going to play against Cleveland one time, and uh, their defensive line coach was the same coach that I had in the USFL. So he used to always talk a lot of gibber to me. So he brought out this big guy in the field. His name was Dan Pike. He was huge, 6'7", 6'8", 290 pounds, chiseled, but he couldn't get off the ball. And so we were playing against him, and Jay and I were talking about, God, this guy's huge, but he can't, doesn't come off. So we're, we're getting him before he's out of his stance. And then that just one of the benefits of when you play against, uh, you practice against Steve McMichael every day and you play against his strength, his intelligence, um, his understanding of defense and his competitiveness, it helped you. What things from your time of practicing back then translate to today versus what things you guys did back then that you're glad are maybe out of the game now? Well, you know, you have to take all the cut blocking into account because we were a team that we are taught to cut block. We used it effectively. We used it. We used it as an intimidation, and it was a big part of our offense because we moved and we pulled and we had a lot of intricacy in the interior of the offensive line that we had cut block a lot. And I'll tell you a story about that. And then some of and some of the um, side now the the uh, cut not the. Um, the blocks and they come in from the side. Crackbacks. Crackbacks. So you know those are out of the game. Dennis McKinnon, he made a living intimidating guys. He got guys so hard on those crackback blocks that now Dennis McKinnon, 160 pound wide receiver, is lighting these guys up. Just to get back to the cut blocks. So we use the cut blocks a lot, effectively. So I'm out there warming up before a Buffalo Bills game, stand, and I as I'm snapping punts, and all of a sudden I see Bruce Smith and Fred Smurless walking towards me. So I'm going, okay, this is kind of weird. They come close, they come closer, and finally Smurless goes, hey, Thayer. And I go, yeah, what's up? He goes, that cut blocking, that cut blocking crap's got to go. you got to cut that out. He went on to write a book that year and called me the dirtiest offensive lineman in the NFL, which I really find that complimentary. But... <laughs> It was great because the first play of the game, uh, Coach Ditka called a counter 28 near G.O., and it's I pull and I cut Bruce Smith. So that was the first play of the game. So it was so awesome. And you talk about, yeah, you can't go out there and cut block anymore because they are protecting the players. But we kind of use it as a different weapon, and that's the way Dick Stanfeld used to teach us. We never did it illegally, but we did it often enough. Do you understand why the practices can't be as physical, or do you think that they need to be more physical? I, I think I I, th I think they have to offer more opportunities to continuously uh, reinforce a positive reinforcement of your craft. That's one thing about offense and defensive line play, linebacker, tight end. You have to have positive reinforcement of your specific technique that you use week in and week out because you can lose something in the course of a monotonous football season. So, yeah, do I wish there was a period of time where they could be on the field and they could have that working period that could be a little bit more physical? Yeah, because remember the first – when I went to Bears training camp here the first time, we had 22 straight days of doubles, full pads every practice with conditioning and weightlifting after the practices. So you've seen the worst of the worst. I like what they're doing and the way they're trying to conserve the body. Um, however, I, I just wish there was that period of positive reinforcement. If it was one day a week, maybe you could get it out of the way then. Do you worry at all about the effects of, of what football has done to you and to, honestly, to some of your teammates? 
oh, you know, it, it's it's given me as much good as it has whatever the perception of bad is in my life. I'm just talking about me specifically. I, I you know, I'm I, yeah, my my body's sore. My knees and hips are are wearing out and stuff. Um, but my dad worked 43 years. I told you he's got you know two shoulders that don't work, two open heart surgeries, two artificial knees, and he's got a body that's beat up from 40 plus years of work. What's your choice? What is your options if you're going to try to make that decision? My best option in life was to get a college education and do everything I could to want to play professional football. I gave everything I had, man, and I would do it again tomorrow. Um, I didn't make a lot of money because we just weren't being paid that well. But I got to be a part of a Super Bowl team for the Chicago Bears. There's only a few guys. There's only a handful of guys out there that can say that. So I don't regret anything. Um, I've enjoyed everything it's it's given me in my life. I feel bad when I see my brother limp around because, yeah, he probably does need an artificial knee. Those th- th- I feel as sorry for that as I do anything that I've gone through. I could ask you all day about football. And it, it, at a certain point, I mean, this it, it's I don't want to just talk to Tom Thayer, the, the former football player. I want to talk with Tom Thayer, the broadcaster, a little bit because that's kind of what the podcast is all about. How did you know that you wanted to call games? You know, I just, even though I was getting out of the game, I still love the game. And, you know, if I was independently, really, if I was independently wealthy or made money like some of these guys made today, I would be volunteer high school coaching probably in the Joliet area you somewhere. You sound like a coach, Tom. Right. Like, seriously, like hearing you break stuff down, I'm I'm honestly, like, I know that you're, you're looking at quality of life, <laughs> and your quality of life is pretty great, but if there was a pro football team in Hawaii, I feel like you might be on its coaching the only, staff. The only pro team that I would coach for in the NFL would be the Bears. That's I wouldn't it? I, I wouldn't go to Hawaii because I wouldn't want to leave my family for that. But then if you do commit to coaching, Lawrence, you know this. You how many coaches how many coaches do you think you've met in your life of broadcasting for the Bears only? 50, 60? Yeah. So Easily. you just you so you just think about how many of those guys are on the move every two years, every year. Go look at some of the resumes of some of these coaches that have been in it for a lifetime. Look at Ron Rivera. Yeah. Quality control coach. Now you got to go here and coach linebackers. Now you got to go here and coach linebackers. Now you're a defensive coordinator. Now you're a head coach and and you move and you move and you move. Right. And that that's the one that, you know, in another thing going back to coach Stanfell, cause I, I love the guy, but he would say, you know, look, you know, try to find a career for yourself. Save the money because, you know, I don't think you want to come here and get yelled at, work 18 hours a day, and then get yelled at at the end of the day by Coach Ditka because men make $30,000 a year, whatever they were getting paid at that point. Now they make a lot more. So if they were probably making the money that they're making now, it would probably be a little bit more encouraging to get into it. Um, but to me, it's always been about, you know, trying to, you know, coach the worst high school in my area and try to make it a better program. Throughout a game, you go through real emotions, and I enjoy it because I get technical, Tom. I get, hey, this guy didn't make this block because of this, and you break it down really well, and Jeff gives you space to do that too, which is great. But then there's the emotional aspect, and whenever I play Mm. a highlight, I always love it when you emote so how how have you gone about kind of developing your style where you still allow yourself to be emotional when things happen? 
It, you know, this year it's kind of been more emotional because the Bears were winning and that wasn't expected of it. You know, for, for example, if you go to the Detroit Lions, you're, we're broadcasting in the stadium and it's Thanksgiving Day and we're seven or eight stories above the field. It's real right. high. Been, but I like that, Lawrence, because I can see everybody. If you go back and you listen to the call of the interception, because we are where we are, I I knew it was going to happen seconds before it happened. And before he ever intercepted, I go, oh, because I knew I knew it was going to happen, and that's that that is unprofessional of me. But just sometimes you you can't get away from it because you can. You look at the down and distance. You look at the personnel. You look at the formation. You look at the feet of the quarterback before he gets to the snap of the ball, and then you look at the route and you look at the safeties right before the snap of the ball where they're going to support, and you see everything flow into position. And you you know it's going to happen, and so yeah, some hey, it's it's hard for me to hide, just like um, the anger I felt after the doink of the field goal this year. This year, it I was talking to one of the media persons that comes into Chicago, and it, it was hard to talk to him because I can't. That anger in me is is that of all of us. Look, I sat with. I'll show you the video. I don't even know if I've ever shown you the video. I sat with. Lance and Alex and Matt were on the set getting ready to do our show over NBC Sports Chicago. Lance has said weeks ago that if it came down to a parky kick, that he was going to be on a knee praying. So there's him and Alex on a knee holding hands, (laughs) praying as this is going on. I had said in November that if it comes down to a kick with parky, the Bears are going to lose. Okay. So the kick goes up. Alex jumps up, and he's like, I think he got it. I think he got it. And then he misses it, and you saw all three of them. The the level of anger that those guys felt was amazing. I'll show you the video because the video is hysterical because Lance, like, goes all the way around the studio because he can't – he can believe it, but he can't believe it. And Forte is just sitting there like – we all knew this was going to happen. It's exactly what was going to happen. I felt like that guy, and I don't mean to take shots at Cody Parkey. He was a really nice guy, and I appreciate him. Um, I appreciated him wearing it in the moment, and I also appreciated him giving praise to God in a moment where you don't ordinarily see athletes do that. As that moment's happening, what's going through you? Here, all right. So I'm my whole itinerary for the next week's going through my head. Okay, we're gonna go to the Coliseum. I can't wait to get there. I haven't been there since I played against the LA Express or the Oakland or the LA Raiders. I just I wanted to see that everything. I'm thinking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm gonna be able to surf in California, and then we're gonna do the game Saturday night. Doink! I got nothing to do. I talked to Molly and Hanley tomorrow morning at 6.20 a.m., and I'm free, you know? So, I really, that's, that's the lifestyle that we live where, yeah, it goes through, we're, we're all working. It doinks, we're done. Yeah, that's the, the feeling that we had, and we were even looking farther than that because, obviously, Matt is from New Orleans. Right. And Alex played in New Orleans, so they had already lined up stuff for us in New Orleans. Like they were, And then it was just – it was over, and I felt like it took the city a couple of days to to really go, wow, this incredible ride that the Bears took us on this year, it's 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 over. Like, there's no game right. this week. 
it's a hard thing to try to get over. Oh, it is. You know, because we didn't have great expectations for the season. So if everyone said, oh, we finished nine and seven and the arrows pointed up that, hey, that's what happened. But then when you doink and you think that you could really had a realist, realistic opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, it just, it, it, it you know, it makes it tenfold uh, for that instant to happen. What did you think of him going on the Today Show? I didn't like it. I'm not a big fan of those, you know, a kicker going on to a TV show and trying to explain the, just trying to explain the pity that people are feeling, talking about, saying, and all that. And, you know, it'd be better just to stay off and try to get prepared for next year. And I couldn't, I kept thinking about like what is, like if, and I don't know if his teammates even watch, but. I couldn't think about like one of those guys, like Akeem Hicks, like turning on his television and being like, is this dude on TV right now? Right. Like talking about him missing the kick after I went to bat for him. Like I kept thinking about how that would play. And in the moment when I reacted to it, I reacted pretty viscerally to it. And cause I knew after covering guys in the NFL, I kind of knew I was going to go and to see Matt Nagy, a, a, I think it was a week later. Be like, yeah, that was a that was a me moment and not a we moment. It was like he's definitely cut. Right. That's over right now. Right, because he's done a good job of like bringing in a a different way that, that the Bears are doing it. But Nagy's got some old school in him too, and, and it came out when he talked about that. Oh yeah, hey, what what is you know why has Matt worked so hard his whole life, and what does he want to accomplish? He wants to keep everybody in that room pointing in the same direction to win a Super Bowl. And then if you do consider that a splinter where now you're going in and you're you're pleading your case on a national audience to a morning TV show that I don't know what is the audience sports fans or are they just sympathetic for topics of the day that they want to hear someone talk about something that's going on in their life. And that was just not the time for a kicker to go up there and do that. Now, the thing about it too, Lawrence, is – when you look at the reality of it, it cost me money. It cost a lot of players on that football team cost money. Cost me money. Right. But you just think about the rollover bonuses that some of these players have mm. or the ability to have a team success and achievement that affects you in your contract, your further earning, or maybe a rollover bonus that we had throughout our career. So, yeah, those of us that are in the broadcasting world, it, it hurt us. But there's guys on the team that have hurt them probably more. What's it like to work with Jeff? Jeff is the hardest working man I've ever been around. So much, you know, sometimes I feel bad for him because he's got so much on his plate. He's so diligent about making sure everything is done perfectly that he just he puts a lot of pressure on himself. And I kind of like it because when we get to that broadcast, I want everybody in that broadcast to be committed. I want them to be Bears fans. I want them to be – I don't want anybody playing fantasy and having a guy from another team playing this. I just want I just want us to all concentrate on the success of the Bears. And it means a lot to Jeff. It really does. What is it that he does that allows you to be your best? Um, we fortunately have a chance to study a lot together. Um and even in, if I notice something at practice when we're out there at training camp or something, I take notes a lot and I, I give it to him. I tell him everything, what I'm thinking. Take a look at this. Take a look at this formation. Look at the stance of or the separation between the tight end and the offensive tackle. Just 
you know, eyewitness account of the preparation, so we're both always on the same page. That's pretty great. I mean, <laughs> I, and I think that another person that was on that broadcast, when Zach was, he's he's so much like Jeff in that regard. And having done play-by-play with Zach, it's the same thing. Like, you're talking about guy pouring over tape, making sure everything's right, getting every story that he can so that he can bring it to the air. I, I can't figure out if Zach has always been that or if that is Jeff's influence on Zach or some sort of combination of both. I think Zach is super talented. When you guys do the DePaul games, I, I enjoy listening to it because I know both of you guys, and it's kind of more fun for me to listen to you guys broadcast a sporting event that I don't know the intricacies of it like when you guys talk about it. And, and so I do think because – you know, it's it's funny. You go out, you walk into the broadcast booth on a Sunday, and we're all having fun, smiling, joking around. Then Jeff walks in. It's all it goes to straight serious there. And in the past, when we had Zach, it would it would affect Zach, and he'd make him a super serious. Um, you know, because yeah, he's a jokester. Like yeah. I, I do know, like from his personality, he's a he's a jokester, but he is able to to kind of flip that switch. Yes, and I do think that that is Jeff's influence. Yes, but you know what too is I I like the influence that they've had because Mark Grody is a different guy than Zach, but I really admire the investment that Mark Grody um, put on himself to make sure the sidelines knew who he was. And there's a lot of people on the sidelines that need to know you. You know, there's the video guys, there's the ball guy, the ball boys, there's the coaches, there's the scouts, there's the trainers. And Mark did a nice job. He's got a different personality than Zach. He's, you know, he earned his way into that locker room. And that's what you got. You know that, Lawrence. You got to earn your way into those locker rooms because no one's going to be accepted or absorbed just when the door opens. Yeah, that that is the truth. There's no doubt about that. What's the most fun that you've had in the booth calling a Bears game? Oh, you know, I, you know, just because of the Green Bay Bears rivalry, the night that they were, I think, Brett Favre's jersey and the Bears went in there and beat them on a super rainy, ugly Thursday night. Rarely during the course of the broadcasting career in our lives have we been able to drive away from Green Bay happy like this year with what happened at the end, just the, the misery is overwhelming at times that, that one game for me, because I admire Brett Favre so much and he's a great player. There's no doubt about it, but I didn't want to see him celebrated on behalf of the bears. And so when the bears were able to go in there and answer the bell and have fun, you know, that, that was a kind of a fun regular season victory for me. What was it like calling Devin Hester returns? Um, you know, it was fun listening to Jeff because you never knew what he was going to say. And then you're watching Devin Hester, Devin Hester and his explosiveness. And, you know, they did a great job, the kickoff return team of setting a path for him. And then he created after that. Uh, the thing that made me nervous is in the Super Bowl when he returned the kick for a touchdown. As soon as it opened up, I looked at Peyton Manning. And Peyton Manning turned his back to the field and was just clapping towards his players on the bench going, all right, you guys, let's get going, let's get going. Kind of taking their mind off of what Devin Hester's doing at opening kickoff of a Super Bowl to look down immediately and say, okay, now what he, how is he reacting to this? 
You know, he, he Peyton went right for the hand clapping and the encouragement. Yeah, but I, I, if I'm remembering this right, didn't they pick him off? I feel like it was the Hester return. Colts come out on the field, then they picked Manning off after that, and then of course. Things got progressively worse as the game went on. Well, you know, what I was thinking with the kickoff is going, wow, if if there's any overconfidence at all by the Indianapolis Colts, it's out the window. It's out the window right now because you can go to a team and you can be flat. And, um, you know, if you're out there and you're flat, it's hard to recover from. If you're out there and you're flat and all of a sudden the guy returns an opening kickoff, your emotions they better skyrocket through the top of your helmet. Is there any other sport that you'd want to go on? A, like, would you want to call a surfing championship? Yeah, man, there's a couple locations in the world that I'd love to go to and call and call a surfing championship. But, you know, the guys that do it, they're the guys that invested their lives in it, and they've been to the hairiest spots in all the world. To me, I would like to go um, to a surf competition with Kelly Slater, um, who's the greatest of the greatest? He's the Michael Jordan. He's the Bill Russell. He's everything you want to be in championships unlike any others. And so it'd be kind of cool to go walk, even at this stage of his life, over 40 years old and still dominating. I'm glad that you're you're having fun. Like, it, it's – you never come in here into the score. Like, some Bears All Access is often done here at the score. There's never a week where you come in here and you're you don't seem like you're having fun. Where does that come from? It's just the appreciation. You know, appreciation, the opportunity to work. Um, just because, you know, you, you, as you grow up as a young kid, you, there's there's no um, itinerary of events that you're going to follow through the course of your life. It's all the chances. You know, the, when I was playing Pop Warner football, the first two years, every single day, my mom would drive me to practice and I would cry because I didn't want to do it. My mom would push me out the door going, oh, you'll stop crying when you see your friends. You know, and so if it wasn't for her perseverance, I would never be here. But it's just those obstacles that you over you have to overcome in your life, whether you're a young kid who hated going to sports for the first two years, he played them, then end up loving him as much as life itself. Um, and that, you know, that's the thing about it is just – just the opportunities in in my life that is incredible. As someone who played in one of the other leagues outside of the NFL, do you think that there is a place for the AAF or the new XFL that's going to come back? I wish the AAF and the XFL were all one league because I think you get a better quality of talent if you had just all those guys focused into into one one arena. Um, I love the AAF. If I was scouting a kicker right now for the Bears, I would only be scouting AAF kickers. I saw a kicker the other night. His last name's Fry. He's kicking in Utah. There's a snowstorm there. He's banging positive 43-yarders with poor footing, uh, a blizzards type of snow. So I want to see guys that have actual live reps. I don't need a guy to come out in shorts in an open field and just kick and look good doing it. I need a guy with pressure on him. In the experience I had in the USFL, was a great experience for me. And then I was thinking, how about this? You take the AAF and they finish their season when the NFL is getting ready to start. How about if you took those teams and allowed them to practice against an NFL team for two weeks? So you got eight one week, then you got eight the next week. So now you're taking care of 24 NFL teams that don't have to abuse each other, but they have an opportunity to improve the talent of the AAF. That's a genius idea, Tom. Like that really is because then you could go to doing more live stuff 
and you and you could get that reward that you're talking about for your craft. See, mm-hmm. maybe maybe coaching is not what you should be doing. <laughs> Perhaps executive is the next thing that you end up doing. Well, you know, again, living through the experience of being in the USFL and having a great time there and learning a lot about football and being coached by a Hall of Famer and George Allen, and I knew how much the NFL meant to him, and I know how much it meant for him to prepare me so I was prepared when I was coming to the Bears because George Allen loves the Bears. He loved them, and he wanted to impress the Bears by making sure that I was ready when I got here. And he... He used to tell me that, and he used to coach me and teach me so much uh, about football that way. I always ask journalists what advice they would end up giving to someone who wants to maybe do what they do for a living. The question I'm going to ask you is a little bit different. What advice would you give a player now that might be thinking about being an analyst when they're done? Uh, you know, obviously you have to study and you, you know, the, you have to study the league. And, you know, one of the things I was always curious about when Jay Cutler was talking about getting in the broadcasting, when you're an active quarterback in the NFL, you learn the defense of your opponent. You learn the system they run. You learn, you learn a couple of numbers just to be accountable if they're blitzing or bringing in different formations and stuff, but you never have to learn the names. That's the one thing that impresses me about the broadcasters and even a guy like Jeff. In the 20 years we've been doing it, the names have changed dramatically. And you have to respect the player by understanding the right enunciation of their name. And that's one of the things that I respect these guys for being able to do it when you have a new team coming in week, week in and week out. If Jay was broadcasting and he had two complete teams, they understand the complexities of the offense and defensive system, the special teams, and make sure you knew the numbers, the names on the numbers, it's it's difficult. So it is about studying. And um, when you get all the information that you get set to you from the other team, you, you know, you have to – during football season, I only read football. I read football constantly. Everything is either something that's sent from me from the other team or film I'm watching from weeks preparation and – that's what it's about. And I, but, I, but you know what, Lawrence? I like to do that, and I'm fortunate that I like to do it because it helps me. You watch Jay's uh, reality show? Um, yeah, I will say bits and pieces I do it's, watch. I think it's hysterical because oh, it's, yeah. to me, it's this, I'm seeing the same dude I saw at Hallis Hall. <laughs> right. You know? But, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad he didn't get into broadcasting, and I'm glad he didn't do the Bears game a couple years ago when he was going to get into it because I think that would have been awkward with the Dahl Loggins here and Jay doing the game and all that. So I think he's better in the reality show than he would be if he was, you know, flying out on a Friday, going to the location, doing meetings Saturday, doing the game Sunday, and getting home on Monday. You know, that's people don't realize when you do that for 20 weeks in a row and you're never home and you're gone every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It it takes a toll on a young family guy like uh, Kristen Cavallari and Jay. Tom, thanks for this, man. I, I really appreciate you spending some time with Anytime, me. Anytime, Lawrence. I enjoy it. This is so fun because I, I was hoping to get your perspective on the podcast, and now people can can hear how much of a professional you are outside of what they hear on Sundays during the, the games. I'm just a surf bum. That's all I am. <laughs> Have, do they do the do they still call, do they call you a Howley or are you a local now? I'm I've I've earned the right to be more of a local. I've I've been to Maui I think every year since 1986. 
you know, and I and I have a group of people out there that are friends of mine. I have a car out there that has all my surf gear with it, and so I have a Hawaii driver's license. Really? I don't know, but that's only to get cheaper golf. Okay, all right. You know, because that... if you go there and you don't have a resident driver's license, the cost of playing golf in Hawaii is extreme. So I have a Hawaii driver's license, and um, you pay local prices. I think that you have what every X player ideally would want. You're in good health. You're in great shape. You have a, a steady job, and you live in Hawaii. But you know what? I tell I tell players all the time when they're getting ready to retire, if you would let me teach you how to surf, I could change your life. Really? Yeah. I think guys that are depressed, guys that are frustrated, guys that are on it, they don't have that enthusiasm in their life anymore that gets their stomach going. Just get involved in something that's a little challenging. A little nerve-wracking. And, and maybe it, a little dangerous. Well, I mean, anything's dangerous. It's a lot more forgiving to fall in water than it is to fall on the surface when you're jogging down Michigan Avenue and you trip over a piece of concrete. I know that's right. <laughs> My knees hurt right now. Right. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this, Tom. My pleasure, Lawrence. I appreciate it. Close the door. I don't have you don't need them. All right. All right, so... I wanted to give you your space to rebut what happened back in episode 60 with Gabe Ramirez. There was something that that you didn't like about the the episode, correct? Well, I just, you guys are going to do your softball draft. And listen, Gabe is, he's Mike Trout. Doesn't play the same position. He plays left field, Trout plays center. But Gabe was in the media league. He was far and away the best. And everyone else was like, Gabe's the MVP. Everyone else is playing for second. Kind of how it went. That's fine. I'm willing to admit that. You guys are missing your lefty power bat when you're going through your rankings. Need somebody to put the ball over the right fielder's head. You don't have anyone in that lineup. You guys are throwing out, oh, what about Herb? He's slapping the ball. What about BMAC? What about Jason? Guys. Hey, over here, hitting number three in your lineup. <laughs> well, I I admit that that was probably an oversight on our part because obviously, like I would tell you all the time that you were my favorite player. So you're right. You you definitely I would say that you would probably be drafted number two in that draft, and you would be the Bryce Harper to his Mike Trout. Is that fair? That's probably fair. I thought I was more consistent than Bryce Harper. Like yeah, Bryce you Harper probably were. Obviously, really damn good, but. I don't know who would be. Who would I be? Who's like the second best player in baseball? Harper is like the face, but he's not the second best player. Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt's always an MVP candidate. He's on a short list. He's one of them. Um, you already Francisco. said that he was Frankie. You said that yeah, game was Frankie I, Lindor. I love Frankie Lindor. Like Frankie Lindor is probably not the second best. Well, maybe he I is. mean, he's pretty damn good. I mean, his teammate's pretty good too. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, the left side of the infield's a problem. Yeah, they, they've got. But I wanted to make sure that people could hear you talk a little bit about this so that we could represent you on this week. I'm actually like putting you in the episode with Tom Thayer. That's unbelievable. So like Tom Thayer sharing airspace with me. Like that's well, kind of sharing it with me. I'm on after him. I'm sure. But do we need to bring the softball league back? I would love to. It's hard working evening or not evenings, but afternoons now yes. here till six and first pitch was always what? Six 15. Yeah. Like, I'm not getting no There's no way that you were going to be a- minutes unless yeah. I 
Maybe the, Mac will let you let you bounce out of here. The score helicopter is uh, in full force. We need those games back at Grand Dang, Park. Walk across the street and play. And that would be nice and easy. Right. That makes too much sense. Oh, all your radio stations are downtown. Eh, go play six miles north. Yeah, northwest like, in, in, in rush hour. Right. Right. Like go sit in Lakeshore traffic. Go to the park that is not convenient to get to by any of the brown or red or any line. Or or enjoy a Cubs home game. That well, those were the worst. Trying to get like, there. Trying to get there and trying to get to the bar afterwards for some of the years that our bars were in Wrigleyville. And it's like, dude, there's a Cubs game going on. Yes, we're dodging all the other thousands just trying to go get our free shot at Jameson. You got a lot of free shots. It's very That's, true. Okay. There, I just wanted to set the record straight. I appreciate it. Give you your opportunity. When do I get my full episode? I don't when know. do we do that? Soon. Soon. I. You're running out of names. You're like, all right, I can go to him. Like, no, <laughs> I'm. I. It's funny because I wrote a list at the beginning of the year, and I was like, because I thought, well, at some point I'm gonna run out of names, mm-hmm. and the rule was that no one could come on twice before I had gone like a lap around Chicago media. And then, like, I started, like, expanding my thoughts on who I would want on the podcast. And at first, it was like, oh, I'll put just radio people on. And then I was like, no, I like talking to TV people. I haven't even really scratched the surface with print journalists, you know? And then you add in team broadcasters. And there's a lot. I got to a, a list of 60 names that had not been on the podcast in season one. And you're only hitting out one a week. Well, so it's usually I, ideally what it happened, what, what I was so going to do it was going to be every other week. Yeah. But the access is allowed. I'm trying not to do too many score people. Right. I'm trying, especially not back to back to back or anything like that. I'm trying to do that. Not Tom Amansky style. Fred McGriff always <laughs> wore the hat really well. But yes, you're on the list. All right. It's good to know. As long as I'm on the list. But now you're on the, you've already. I know. You've what, what's going to be better it? than talking softball? I mean, I me know. and Gabe did it for 20 minutes. I know. It That's, was fun. Gabe is a stud, dude. You know who might go number three in our draft? Like, if you go two, you know who might go three? Uh, Chief's son. I was going to say Hinger. Yeah. Hinger was valuable. Throw yeah. her at first base. Like, you put her at first base. You're not trying to hide her whatsoever. No. She's making plays, and she's putting the ball in play every at bat. Yep. Like, hitting the ball hard. She was... She was solid and probably underrated. I I would agree. Like, we missed her when she was when she left. We absolutely missed her because there's nothing better than with for me playing third, being able to let one go. Right, like where you're not worried to about breaking someone's hand. Well, it's nice because she got to use the glove too. Yes, that's what like, I'm saying. And it's like all right, yeah, you don't have to worry about a jammed finger. She's a softball player over there that played collegiately and she's going to make the play. We'll take whip we'll, that thing like crazy. We'll take your sexist rule that <laughs> right, you yeah, have exactly. and it completely exploit <laughs> it because we've it. got an actual <laughs> player over there and now I can actually let it go from third instead of having to pull back on the throw. Right. No, she was absolute stud for us. I agree. All right. Well, thanks for doing this, Chef. Anytime. It's appreciated. Anytime. It was fun. It's very fun. So... There you have it. Nick Shepkowski upset that he was not put in the draft when Gabe and I were talking about softball players. I think I'm in there in the top five. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I thought Gabe gave me too much, much credit, but I do think that I'm probably in that top five because you do need someone who is willing and able to play third base 
if you're playing in a 16-inch league. And I always loved playing third base, probably because I have a little bit of a death wish, my guess is. So in lieu of the email portion, I gave you a little extra bonus material. I gave you an angry Nick Shepkowski who came up to me as I was recording with Tom Thayer saying, what the hell is going on with those softball rankings? Why wasn't I higher up? So I thought I would give my former intern an opportunity to talk about how great of a softball player that he was. And in fact, he actually is and was a great softball player. Like they always moved back when Shep was coming up to bat. No doubt about it. So thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the bonus material. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. So ridiculous. Thanks for listening to the house of L. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Peace. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.